The Commonwealth Club of California congratulates the class of 2021. We know how much you want to stay connected with the issues and influencers that matter most. That's why we are offering all high school and college graduates in the class of 2021 a free one-year membership to the club. From politics to social justice, climate to pop culture, membership at the Commonwealth Club opens up new worlds of learning and the chance to interact in person and online with today's headline makers and people like yourselves who care about what's going on in the world. Claim your free membership at commonwealthclub.org slash grads. And join us. We look forward to seeing you at the club. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome back to the Toby Family Auditorium. <laughs> it's week to week, uh, the more or less bi-monthly to bi-monthly political roundtable from the Commonwealth Club. Um, I'm John Zipper, your host for week to week, and the club's vice president of media and editorial. Now, on tonight's special program, we're going to go in-depth on this, excuse me, gubernatorial recall election. Uh, we'll end our program with our world-famous news quiz, where you can win some chocolate. Um, but before we get started, let's meet our panelists. On the far end of the stage, and she's not over there because she's been misbehaving. <laughs> We're just doing good uh, spacing and, and distancing and, uh, of course, getting our digital participant included here. But on the far end of the stage is Carla Marinucci. She's a senior writer for Political California Playbook. You can follow her on, on Twitter at cmarinucci. Welcome back, Carla. Thank you. Thank you. Right next to me is Scott Schaefer. He's a senior editor at KQED's Politics and Government Desk, and he's on Twitter at Scott Schaefer. And the big intimidating face looking over all of us is Dan Schnur. He's a professor at USC's Annenberg School of Communications and at UC Berkeley's Institute of Governmental Studies. And he's the host of the weekly Politics in the Time of the Coronavirus webinar. He's on Twitter at... Dan Schnur. Good to see you again, Dan. Thank you, John. So let's just get started. Ballots are already being cast in California's gubernatorial recall election. Just by a show of hands, who has already sent in or done their voting? Mm -hmm. Quite a few folks. Not your typical group of voters, I don't (laughs) Well, this recall, of course, is only one of several attempts to get on the ballot, but it's the only one that has succeeded in getting there and and triggering an election. Um, What first had looked like an easy victory for the uh, incumbent governor, Gavin Newsom, has in the past month turned into a nail-biter for the Democrats. So let's explain and explore this historic recall election. And I'm going to start with Dan, our our professorial uh, uh, panelist, excuse me. Um, Actually, could we start by saying, how do these recalls work? Because, you know, how, how does someone get on... How do, how do they trigger a, a recall election? Um, how do people get on the ballot? All that kind of stuff. Lay out the groundwork for what we're seeing. Okay. So when a dissatisfied citizen or a group of decided, dissatisfied citizens decide that they want to recall an officeholder, whether a governor or a legislator or a district attorney, anyone else, they, they, they circulate petitions. And the threshold for the number of signatures needed in order to qualify a recall against a particular office holder is based on the number of votes cast in the last general election. And so uh, because the 2018 statewide elections saw a a somewhat uh, high turnout, the threshold was a bit higher for qualifying this year's, whereas back in 2003, when Governor Davis was recalled, his campaign for re-election against Bill Simon, the Republican in the previous year's election, had been a result had taken place during a very low turnout year, and so qualifying the bat for the ballot that uh, qualifying the recall that year was much easier. Once the recall itself has, uh, or once the uh, the citizens have turned in their petitions, there's a fairly extensive review process at both the state or county level in which those signatures are reviewed and ultimately verified, which was obviously the case earlier this year. And at that point, any man or woman in the state of California who can collect a 
certain number of signatures or pay a roughly $4,000 filing fee can qualify as a candidate to run in the recall. Whereas in 2003, as some of you may remember, we had well over 100 candidates uh, uh, who qualified for the recall ballot, including Arnold Schwarzenegger, the ultimate, the ultimate victor. This year, we've seen a slightly smaller number, and you know, there's roughly 45, 46 uh, candidates running in the recall election. Where this gets tricky, and then I'll turn it over, John, to the smart people on the panel, is not so much with the qualifying of the recall or even the qualifying of the recall candidates. What's tricky is the ballot itself, because as most of our audience knows, because they're smart enough people to come to Commonwealth Club events, there are two questions on this ballot. The first question is simply an up or down question. It's very Caesaresque in that, in that way. It's a, a thumbs up or some down. Do you think the governor should be recalled from office or not? Yes or no. And then the second question lists all those candidates who qualified for the ballot as potential alternatives. And the real key strategic question here, and I imagine this is where we'll spend a good amount of our time this evening, is that technically speaking, at least, Gavin Newsom is not running against any of those other candidates. Whereas in 2018, he faced Republican John Cox in the general election and defeated him very handily. In those election, there's no candidate who's actually running against Gavin Newsom. This is a referendum, yes or no, up or down on the governor. And only if the recall question one passes, does question two, who should replace him, become relevant. Now, the governor and his advisors are urging his supporters not to vote on the second question. I know we'll talk about that all, uh, also a bit later. But for those of you in the audience who have not filled out your ballot, the first question is an up or, no, up or down on Newsom. The second question is the selection of the alternative to succeed him in office. And you are not required to vote on two questions, as, on both questions, as many have suggested. But nor are you forbidden from voting on the second question if you vote against the recall. I think those are two very good points to keep in mind for those of you who have not filled out the ballot or have friends or neighbors uh, who are still considering their options too. Okay, Carla, now tell us how this particular recall came about. Uh, you know, a, a group of Republicans uh, have, have mounted efforts against Gavin Newsom almost since he was elected in 2018. In a landslide vote, by the way, we should note. And it was a, uh, one of the largest landslides in a couple of decades here in California. But the recall attempts began almost immediately. We should note that California has one of the lowest bars of any state in the union on uh, mounting a recall. Um, many states require governor be convicted of some uh, criminal offense and or has to be succeeded by the lieutenant governor. That's not the case in California. Um, and Orrin Heatley, who is one of the uh, uh, proponents of this recall, um, did mount uh, this, this recall attempt. He, they were almost out of gas. Uh, they were almost about to fail uh, last November when a judge gave them an extension because of the COVID situation to collect the signatures they needed. It was 1.7 million signatures I think they needed uh, to uh, valid signatures. And they were given an extra six months. Uh, 120 uh, days. Yeah, 120 days, I'm sorry, to, uh, to collect those signatures. That gave them the time that they needed. In that time, we had the French laundry. We had COVID. Uh, we had a, a perfect storm of all kinds of events happen. And they did succeed in getting 2.1 million signatures um, as of March. And here we are today. Scott, of the, the, the winning, the winning, the, the successful recall, meaning the group that actually got this to the, to the election, what were the, I mean, we know the, the background, of, it's against the background of the pandemic, it's against the background of the uh, French Laundry. Were those the two issues that continually have pulled that got people to sign it, or were there other things? Was there, for example, just dislike of Newsom or something? Yeah, well, you know, as I think Dan and Carla noted, there are recall petitions being circulated all the time. I don't think I've ever been to a California State Republican Party convention where there wasn't a desk or a booth <laughs> with somebody collecting signatures to recall Jerry Brown or Gavin Newsom, and they usually just die a quiet death. And this would have happened again with this one, but as Carla said, they got an extension. Um, and, and so, you know, it, 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 
it seems that it, the recall petition had, had no mention of, certainly not French Laundry, it had no mention of COVID uh, because they began circulating these when, you know, before COVID was really the kind of issue that it, that it became. Um, it was about illegal immigration. It was about crime. It was about high taxes. It was about homelessness. That, you know, if you looked at the top of the petition, and this is something Newsom tried to emphasize, is that these folks are not motivated by the way I closed businesses or the way I closed schools or the way I handled the pandemic. They're more ideological. They're more right wing. They're supporters of Donald Trump. Uh, Warren Heatley is a former uh, Yolo County Sheriff's deputy. He's been in law enforcement for 25 years. And he was really focused on a lot of these law and order issues. Um, now, it doesn't really matter uh, because what really the accelerant for this was the French laundry. I mean, at that point, it was almost literally the same day yeah. that the judge gave gave Heatley an extra 120 days. Almost, I think it was almost to the same to that day, that same day, November 6th, Newsom was eating at the French laundry with a, a dozen friends and colleagues and, you know, old uh, there's some lobbyists there. And, you know, we all know the story. And that really from that point, they just it went through the roof in terms of the number of signatures because it was an easily understandable thing. Mm -hmm. um, but it, that's not how it began. Yeah. Um, Dan, uh, we're a bit more than a year away from the 2022 scheduled regular election. Um, why didn't Republicans just wait until then? Do they have an easier chance of getting in a Republican than they would in 2022? Or what's the thinking? Well, I think it's worth going back to a point that the Scott and Carlo were making a, a moment ago, that this is something they've been trying to do for quite some time, very unsuccessfully. So when they began, it was relatively early in Newsom's first term in office, but it wasn't until not just the French Laundry, but also the surge in the number of coronavirus cases and hospitalizations and deaths that we experienced over the winter that really gave the recall uh, that re really gave the, the recall its necessary lift. Uh, that said, no question that removing a sitting governor from office during a recall is going to be much easier, particularly for a political party like the Republican Party in California that is in such a small minority. Because the thing to remember, and I, I should have mentioned this earlier and did not, is when the uh, the results of the second question are tallied of all the candidates running to succeed Newsom. The winning candidate does not have to receive more votes than Newsom did. The winning candidate does not have to receive a majority of the vote. They simply just have to receive more votes than anyone else on the ballot. Now, with 46 candidates, I was not a math major in college, but that suggests to me that at least theoretically someone could win the governorship of California with between 2 and 3% of the vote. And while that's fairly unlikely, most public opinion polls now show talk show host Larry Elder winning with roughly 20% of the vote. And for a conservative candidate like Elder, who would almost have an almost impossible task ahead of him, attempting to get a majority of 50% of the vote in California, he can get 20%. And so for Republicans that are such a small minority, that winning candidate has a much lower threshold to reach than they would in either 2018 or 2022. And I know we're going to get into this, but you know there is no prominent Democrat on the second part of the ballot, unlike 2003 when okay. Lieutenant Governor Cruz Bustamante, much to the consternation of Gray Davis, and the party said, look, I'm against the recall, vote no on the recall, but then vote for me. And that you know, gave Democrats an, a reason perhaps to go to the polls. There is no one like that this time around, just as there is no Arnold Schwarzenegger either. Um, but there's, you know, Newsom and the Democratic Party really pressured Democrats to stay out uh, because they didn't want to. It would complicate the message and it would make it harder to frame it as a Republican recall, which is what they're doing. If a prominent Democrat like, say, Antonio Villaraigosa had gotten in, you know, and he might have, there are people that might prefer Antonio Villaraigosa to be governor. And so I think they were worried that someone could get in who might actually, whether it was the lieutenant governor or whoever, detract from support from him and get people to vote no so that they could vote yeah or vote yes on the recall so they could vote for that person. But, right. you know, that's just not there. I mean, I think, uh, I, you know, a lot of Democrats are now nervous because um, they nobody expected it to be this close, uh, this close to the election. Three weeks out, we have three major polls that have this pretty much at a dead heat in terms of the first question on that ballot. Should Gavin Newsom be recalled? And uh, that's where a lot of Democrats are now weighing, 
Should I leave that second question blank? As, as Governor Newsom and his team are, are suggesting that they do? Or should they pick at least the best possible choice should, the, should a Republican become governor? Um, Dan, you've, you've actually gone on the record in, in someplace I was reading online and what, in, directly criticizing the Newsom camp's decision to urge people to leave this, the second question blank and, and not to, to run any you know, viable alternative. Explain your reasoning. What, what, why, why is that bad? Sure. And I should make it clear that this is not a criticism of the governor and whether he should remain in office or not, but rather a criticism of his political strategy. Because it seems to me when Newsom and his team worked so hard to keep any other Democrat off the ballot, they're taking a tremendous risk. They're essentially doing is they're putting all their eggs in that first question basket in gambling that they can defeat the recall in question one. Because by not having another Democrat on the ballot, a Bustamante, a Vita Ragosa, anyone else, a Democrat with some level of, of plausible experience, they're essentially, in case if the first question does pass, they're essentially, they essentially have no fallback and are left you know, are leaving not only their party, but the very deep blue state of California in all likelihood with a Republican governor who voted for Donald Trump for president in one of the last two elections. I think that that's an abdication of responsibility on the governor's part, and I think he made it even worse last week when he began, as Carla mentioned, urging his supporters not to vote on the second question at all. And to me, completely aside from uh, political strategy, this is a question of character, and this is a question of, of devotion to the state of California. Now, Gavin Newsom, over the course of his career of public service, has demonstrated that he cares deeply about the state. And that's why I find it so unfortunate that he would say, at this time, I hope you'll vote to keep me in office. But if not, I really don't care what happens to the state. You're on your own. I think, that, you know, in his defense, uh, who would he choose? You know, I mean, because they've anybody plausible has been kept out. I mean, you look at the list, Kevin Paffraff, uh, who's an interesting dude, you know, entrepreneur, real estate entrepreneur, YouTube star is, you know, actually was at first in one poll. I think it was yeah. a survey USA poll. I don't know how accurate that was, but you know, there, you know, if he had, if he had made a recommendation, Dan, I mean, what would we have, what would he have done? Well, and Scott, that's exactly my point. Newsom himself made this bed by working so hard to keep any other Democrat off the ballot. It was very widely reported. I think by the two of you, among others, that there was a lot of serious consideration on the part of former Los Angeles mayor, Antonio Vitaragosa to consider the race. Other past and current Democratic office holders considered it also, and were very much strong-armed not to. And had Newsom not been so forceful in keeping other Democrats off the ballot, he would not be depriving his supporters of a more plausible set of options than currently exist. Here's a wild card question. If, let's, let's just say Jerry Brown had decided to jump in <laughs> for the <laughs> second part. Would that would he be precluded because of term limits? I don't know. Oh, interesting. <laughs> I think I think he I think he would have been because he's not uh, eligible. The term, yeah, the, the the term limits don't relate directly to the election ballot, but to the number of years that you could serve in office. And since Brown has served a full eight years since term limits were implemented. He would no longer be eligible. I have an even stranger question. And Scott, Carla, John, one of you might know the answer. What if the polls get worse for Gavin Newsom? And what if the week before the election, even the night before the election, it becomes clear that the recall is going to succeed? Can Gavin Newsom step down from office and end the recall campaign? And some Democrats have, have sort of suggested that on social media. Yeah. Which would mean what? That the Lieutenant Governor Eleni Koulinakis so would take over. Still there. And I, 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 I do not expect that to happen. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is all part of the political calculations that, have, that has gone on from the beginning is, you know, the Newsom team has not wanted to, has wanted to show Newsom having strength, but also not wanting to open the door to, an, to another contender down the line in 2022 whether it be Kulinakis or whoever. Some Democrats have su had suggested, look, why don't we put up some kind of placeholder, like a Leon Panetta, somebody who would not, you know, know that was taken out of the picture. So now here we are. 
And you know, many Democrats I, I know are asking the question uh, on the second, you know, the second question on the ballot. There is a big difference between some of these Republican candidates, a Larry Elder and a Kevin Faulkner, for instance. And that's something that they have to weigh as this, uh, as this goes forward. And I think we should say, we maybe kind of alluded to it earlier, that while the polls are close, it's particularly close among likely voters. When you look at the whole universe of registered voters, it's, you know, I think, you know, it was a much wider, had more comfort area, for, a comfort zone for Newsom. But when you look at who's most motivated to vote, it's Republicans, it's people who support the recall. And that's the challenge that Newsom has. And I think not having, you know, a Democrat, plausible Democrat on the second part may and, hurt and, with turnout. And part of the challenge for Newsom's team has been, look, he has the money. He's got, what, $60 million in the bank. The runway is short. The runway is short to educate voters on how to how to vote on this thing, to pick up that ballot, to don't not to let it sit on the table and not to go past September 14th. Usually an election in you know November, you got plenty of time to tell voters about that. That's not there anymore. And, uh, you know, I had lunch with Willie Brown recently and he was telling me he was in Chinatown and a lot of the old ladies there were saying, well, we're going to vote yes on the recall to help Gavin Newsom. And he was going like, no, you don't know on the recall. So to educate the voters has been a big thing. I've been following Newsom around at some of these events in Los Angeles and other things where they have, uh, you know, get out the vote efforts going. And you can hear these people on the phone trying to tell the voters, you know, here's how you fill out the ballot. And it's a very heavy lift to do. And there is time is short when this thing has to be done over by September 14th. John, can I John, can I pick up very quickly on, on Scott's previous point um, about the polls? Uh, in fact, when polls are done of all registered voters in California, the recall is defeated by a huge margin. But as all of you know, that's not the way elections work. And so it normally happens, and the two most respected polls in California, the IGS Berkeley poll and the PPIC poll, have both done this. About a month before election, reputable polling firms begin to screen for likely voters. And among all voters, Newsom defeats the recall by a landslide. Among likely voters, the race is virtually tied within the margin of error, which means, as we've been talking about, that Newsom's challenge is not to persuade undecided voters, not to reach out to the political center, but to motivate his own Democratic base. And he has to find a way to convince young voters, progressive voters, voters from minority communities who might not love Gavin Newsom, that they need to turn out for him. And that kind of base motivation is something, at least to date, that he's really been struggling with. And it's the reason that Vice President Harris is coming to Oakland this Friday. Well, and I think, too, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, I think on that front, this is where Larry Elder has been a I, I want to get into, gift yeah, to yeah. Gavin Newsom. Well, well can we? Yeah. Do you well, want I was going to say quickly, you know, it's hard. It's a, it's a hard moment to be saying, please come rescue my governorship. You know, you look at what's happening in the state. Not Newsom's fault, but you've got wildfires. You've got, you know, kids going back to school and parents are worried. You've got, you know, a lot of people unemployed, economic stress um, and wildfires. And and so, you know, that classic question on a poll, like, is California on the right track or the wrong track? I would guess right now you're going to see a majority of people saying it's on the wrong track. And it's not all Newsom's fault, of course, but it's a rough environment to motivate Democrats to come out and help you, you know, because people aren't feeling that great about uh, the way things are going. Now, one of the ways that uh, Newsom is trying to motivate people is by talking about the Republican frontrunner. Carla, uh, you recently broke a big story on him. So tell us about... Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we've never seen it. We, we've rarely seen, I think, a candidate get into the race so late in the race um, who's ha never had an elective experience who we really know so little about personally. We know a lot you know, about him. He's been a talk show host for 20 years. Larry Elder. He's Larry Elder. He said a lot of things on the radio, um, but personally, uh, I, I was realizing we don't know a lot about him. Has he been married? Does he have kids? What, what's his personal life like? What's the, what's the deal? So I started looking into that a couple of weeks ago, just Googling Larry Elder and wife. And um, you, know, you, you get a couple of different women that come up, first of all. And then uh, this one woman, Alex, uh, Alexandra Daitig, uh came up. I tracked her down. She was his ex-fiance. She was his ex-producer at the radio station. And she was, uh, she had made headlines when she was in her 20s because she was the lead witness against Heidi Fleiss 
in the Hollywood madam. She was in that circle. She, she testified against her about what it was like to work for her. Um, Alexandra lived with uh, Larry Elder. She was engaged to him for 18 months, and so she provided us a lot of documents and uh, told us um, uh, of her experiences. Uh, and, and one of the most, I think, dramatic incidents is uh, she recounted how uh, she said he's a, he's a very regular and heavy marijuana user, and that in the middle of uh, an argument, um, he took out a gun and out of a nightstand a loaded gun, and um, basically used this gun, gestured with this gun in a way that was very threatening to her. She said she basically, and I'm quoting her, I ran for my life out of that uh, relationship. He made her sign a non-disclosure agreement, um, but she basically told us uh, a, a lot of details of that relationship, and we have documentation on that. So we did that story last week, um, and we said Mr. Elder has denied brandishing a gun, but he hasn't um, dealt with any of the other, uh, any of the details of that incident or anything else. He said he won't dignify uh, her, her comments, but I think that story and other stories, CNN had a story about comments he's made about women saying that um, Donald Trump did more to get obese women off the couch in the march against, you know, march to, against Washington. The Chronicle had some stories. I had a story where he was quoted in saying that um, women should just sort of uh, take it if they are getting abuse or, se uh, or uh, um, sexism in the workplace. Uh, there's been a whole litany of things over the years um, that Larry Elder has said, and as a talk show host, uh, you know. Well, and it's been a, you know, sort of a godsend for Newsom. We'll see if he can really take full advantage of it, because now he's trying to frame the races yeah. as between him and Larry Elder. It's like, well, if you don't vote no on the recall, you're going to get this guy as governor. We'll see what the polling looks like as we get closer. I mean, Kevin Faulkner, among others, has called for uh, Elder to drop out, as has Caitlyn Jenner. Um, but it does give an opening for him, yeah. Faulkner, to kind of move a little bit more toward the middle and you know, reiterate his... And, and I think Newsom has, has also taken the whole issue of COVID and made that front and center because all of the Republican candidates have have basically agreed they would do away with mask mandates and and vaccine mandates. It, that is a big difference from where Newsom is at on this. And at a time, I think, when many Californians, the polls show, basically support uh, what, what the governor's doing on that yeah. front. So that is, a, that is a very big difference on this uh, race. Dan? And Car Carla's last point is a particularly important one, because even before her blockbuster story about Elder's personal life, here's a candidate who is much, much more conservative than the overwhelming majority of California voters, not just on COVID-related issues, but on a number of other policy fronts as well. And so going back to something we were talking about earlier, Technically, on the ballot, Newsom isn't running against anyone. It's an up or down referendum on himself. And what Larry Elder did when he entered the race is he presented Newsom with a target. If Larry Elder didn't exist, Gavin Newsom would have wanted to invent him. Because now, instead of running against Donald Trump, which seems a little bit odd several months after Trump has left office, instead of running against this multi-candidate Republican amorphous blob, he has an opponent an opponent who has said and done a series of very uh, controversial things. And so for Newsom, if he does survive, we'll go back to what we were discussing earlier about motivating his base. I know this from my time on campaigns, and I know Scott remembers it from his time running campaigns also. There's two ways to motivate your supporters. One is by telling them really inspiring things about your own candidate. The other is by telling them really frightening things about the opposition. Newsom's team has tried the first, didn't work. And now they're on to the second, and Larry Elder is uh, is providing a very, very helpful target to them. It's It's been so interesting for all of us, I think, to, to, and I'm sure for you, to listen to these candidates, because there's really, it's been a long list of attacks on Newsom, you know, uh, on all the issues that I mentioned earlier, the wildfire, the wildfires, pandemic, the drought, uh, taxes, homelessness, housing costs, I mean, it's all kind of on his lap, and that's what happens when you're the incumbent. But... 
they don't have to come up with really significant alternatives. You know, they don't, that's just not what they have to do. They just have to get enough people to vote yes on the first part and then, you know, see who comes in first. And it's, it's not, there is a lawsuit, in fact, challenging this whole thing because uh, there are those, including the dean of the Berkeley, uh, UC Berkeley Law School, who thinks that it's unconstitutional. Um, he would want either, he thinks Newsom should be on the second part, that people who oppose the recall, you know, have nowhere to go on the second part of the ballot. And what Dan said earlier, that, uh, you know, there could be many more people basically voting for Newsom, voting no on the recall, than whoever comes in first on that second part of the ballot. And they're trying to make the case in federal court that, you know, that violates the very principle of democracy of you know, whoever gets the most votes wins. I don't think that's going to go anywhere. This has been tried before. You know, there have been lawsuits in pre- with preview of the 2003 recall. Uh, but nonetheless, I think it's, it's weird. It's a little troublesome. Maybe it's something to talk about after the recall uh, about trying to change it. Uh, let's talk about some of the other major candidates. You mentioned Kevin Faulkner. What's, he, what's his pitch? Well, Kevin Faulkner got into the race. Uh, He would probably have run for governor. He said he would run for governor in 2022 with or without the recall. And Kevin Faulkner was a moderate mayor, Republican mayor. At the time he was elected mayor in San Diego, uh, he was the um, San Diego was the largest city with a Republican mayor. Um, And they have a sort of a tradition of that. I mean, Pete Wilson was there. They had they've had other uh, Republicans. But he really. stood out as somebody who could work with Democrats uh, on the city council. He was very critical of Donald Trump uh, over the wall and over, you know, general treatment of immigrants. Um, he said I, he was vague about whether he voted for him, I think, in 2000. He did vote for him, but... It, but uh, in 2020, he did. In 2020, he yeah, did. Yeah, I don't know yeah. about 2020, 20, 2016. But anyway, so he's, he's been running on his record as somebody who knows government, who can get things done, who ran a big city, who knows how to put together, but kind of competence, I would say. Now, if you talk to people in San Diego, you know, he wasn't a perfect mayor. You know, I mean, those issues of homelessness and some of the issues that he complains about with regard to Newsom very much exist in San Diego. There were also some controversies about some deals, uh, real estate deals uh, downtown that didn't, you know, make him look great. So, but I would say in general, he... I think was was thought of as somebody who was a more of a almost kind of like a Pete Wilson Republican, more a little more moderate. But then he kind of tacked to the right, in part because they all know that they, in order to win, they don't need to get Democrat votes or uh, you know decline to state voters. They just need to get their base out. And so we'll see if he he seems like he may be coming back toward the middle a little bit. But I think that's his basic pitch: is mm-hmm. he, he's a, he'll be steady, he'll be a steady hand uh, in Sacramento, who won't you know blow up. Won't, you know, keep the trains running, not going to you know, crash the car, whatever <laughs> vehicular metaphor you want to use. Um, and so I'd, I'd say that's his basic pitch. Yeah. But he's, he's not an exciting person. He's, not, he's no Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's no Larry Elder in terms of like social media. Um, Kevin Paffrath has a lot more. The Democrat has a lot more followers on social media. He's, he's kind of bland. Um, and maybe that's part of what he's selling is like, oh, you can trust me. I'm steady, stable. I'm a grown up. Um, but I don't know if the voters are going to buy that. We'll see. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting, Scott, toward, toward, toward your point. Uh, Faulkner's campaign actually made an online ad in which the candidate was eating and praising the virtues of vanilla ice cream. So he is attempting to make a virtue out of that blandness. I would, I would say this, if there's anyone in the audience who is a friend or family member of Kevin Faulkner and wanted to get him a gift, what Kevin Faulkner would really benefit from, if such a thing were possible, is a time machine. Because he is an absolute, almost perfect exemplar of what a pre-Donald Trump Republican Party would look for in its leaders. Very much a George Bush, Mitt Romney type of Republican. And of course, it's Faulkner's hope, if not this year, next year, that a post-Trump Republican Party is looks toward that type of alternative the way they did before Trump emerged on the political landscape. But in such a short time period after Trump's defeat, particularly with a candidate like Elder, who represents so much of what attracted many voters to the former president, Faulkner's challenge is running in 2021 when the electorate that really would be excited about him was one from 2014 or 2012. 
Um, yeah. I mean, and we, we've got to say to, to Larry Elder's credit, I mean, he has some of the same qualities that Donald that got Donald Trump elected. He's a very good communicator. He's very, very good at getting into those audiences. There was a big rally in Fresno over the weekend. He connects to these working class Republican audiences in a very big way. And that has been Gavin Newsom's problem in, in, in a lot of ways. I mean, yes, he was elected in a landslide in 2018. But it's, it's interesting. How did we get to this point? There's something about the likability factor or his, his, his ability to connect to average folks. When it's interesting, and you, you, you've seen him many times up close and personal in events. When he's one on one in a crowd like this, he does, he, he does, does connect with people. I saw him at a Mexican restaurant in L.A. this week. He's, he goes in there, he talks to people, sits down with them. But when he's in front of a monitor, it's, he uses, you know, high-tech words and, like, and, and just, uh, you know, usually shows up looking fabulous, as he always does, and, and at people do not connect to the guy. I think, and I, I don't know this, but he, you know, he does, the governor does have dyslexia, and he, is, he memorizes everything to his detriment, I think sometimes because he he he'll whether he's talking about the budget, which he can go up, you know, when they unveil the budget, hours. two and a half hours, he yeah, can just go with no days. notes or minimal yeah. notes, but it 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 doesn't warm he doesn't warm himself up to people in that way. It comes off as seeming kind of like mechanical or cold. Um, too and he techie, does too, techie. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he talks. He uses phrases that no people don't use. You know, ordinary people don't use. And it just seems. And the, and the elitism I think that comes from his sort of the, the the friendship with the Gettys and all that. I think that just was so crystallized by that dinner at French Laundry yes, that it was. Really, it yeah. just really brought home for a lot of people what they don't like about him. Well, speaking of his landslide and getting to another Republican challenger, John Cox is running again. He his. What, what's his his uh, pitch that he's making that he came this close to only losing by 23 points? Yeah. <laughs> Dan or anyone? I mean, I mean it's been interesting to watch him. I mean, this is a guy who's run for office half a dozen times now, and he spent millions of dollars doing it. And um, I was at the event where he brought out the thousand-pound bear, uh, <laughs> which he, which he had maybe about this far from the reporters with no, you know, I mean, it was a little scary, okay? Uh, on a leash of some <laughs> yeah, sort, yeah. I hope? No, unleashed, <laughs> completely unleashed, um, but really highly trained, we were told. Um, uh, you know, I, I've never seen anything like that. Uh, th- these kind of gimmicks that he's been using, I mean, and, and media has been very tough on him. Some of the editorials have been... Like enough already. Yeah. Um, this is we, we've we've heard his pitch before, as you said. Um, he lost in a landslide, and, and the pitch hasn't changed pretty much. No, and what you know, it's hard to notice, hard to miss rather. You know, he has run for office five or six times. Ran for president once. He, you know, he was in Illinois. Ran for several offices there, and he keeps calling himself a non-politician. An outsider. It's like, yeah, yeah. no, you just haven't won any elections. You know, <laughs> you'd be a politician if you'd won. I mean, you know. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So exactly. Just, I don't know. It's just kind of discordant. I think. Yeah. I think. It, I mean, even in the Republican Party, he's struggling. So, uh, uh, you know, I think uh, he, between his campaign, I think Caitlyn Jenner has been another sort of interesting thing to Let, watch. Let's get into Caitlyn Jenner. Oh, I was, I was, I was just down in uh, Venice to, to watch Caitlyn Jenner um, do a walk and talk through the homeless uh, area of Venice. And, I mean, that was a, uh, you know, TMZ and all the paparazzi were there. And, you know, you had 30 photographers. And, and uh, it was the, it, it, no, there was no policy whatsoever involved and no details on what she would do on homelessness. Uh, you know, there are, however, some 47 items of her merchandise on her campaign <laughs> website. I will say that. You know, it's funny because when she got into the race, there were people who said, oh, she's like this, this, you know, this, this recalls Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. She is so unlike Arnold Schwarzenegger. I mean, Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, I think we said earlier, he cared about policy and he studied, you know, and he was into government. I mean, he was married to a Kennedy. Uh, and, and Caitlyn Jenner has just shown 
zero interest in even trying to think yeah. about and learn about anything. It's all generalities yeah. and criticisms and sort of like tone deaf comments about like the, his, her, her friend who closed up a hangar at the <laughs> Santa Monica airport because he was tired of dealing with the homeless and <laughs> went to Sedona. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just like, yeah. we can all relate, right? But, you know, yeah. and also, you know, her voting record, we, we, we wrote yeah. about that, how she's, how she's failed to vote in, in most of the elections in which she's qualified. So, I think at this point, being her, her point, point in the polls and so forth, uh, she's kind of a footnote in the race, if that. Uh, I, I think you know, Kevin Kiley, the assemblyman from uh, the Sacramento area, is somebody who conservatives are liking right now. Um, and I think he's a young, up-and-coming uh, Republican who he def- clearly knows policy issues. You may not like where he stands on those issues, but, but the bottom line is he clearly cares about them, knows about them, has a deep knowledge of them. And he's somebody to watch, I think, in California politics. Yeah, I'd, I'd, offer, I'd offer you this, John, if, if I can. I think it is more likely than not that Newsom survives the recall. It wouldn't be surprising if he lost for all the reasons we were talking about earlier, but more likely than not he survives. That said, I think there's something, a couple of important things that can be learned from this race, not just for California, but for the nation, one having to do with the Republican field we've just been discussing. So the Republican Party in California and nationally is trying to figure out what it is after Donald Trump. And so watching them sort through the alternatives that we've just been discussing, I think is instructive on how grassroots Republicans will sort through their post-Trump options should the former president not decide to run in 2024. In other words, will they want someone like Larry Elder? Maybe not him himself, but someone who tries to be Donald Trump, Donald Trump Jr. or Mike Pompeo or someone like that. Will they want a Bush-Romney-type Republican, as I was saying earlier, like Faulkner? Will they want an outsider businessman like Cox? Will they want a young conservative thought leader like Kylie? I think we can learn something about where the Republican psyche post-Trump is headed by how the votes sort out in this recall even if the numbers end up coming up short. The other thing really quickly that I think we can learn from this recall, and we'll carry national lessons as well for Democrats, is how effective is it to run against Donald Trump when Donald Trump isn't on the ballot? And again, if Trump will obviously not be on the midterm ballot next year, and if he doesn't run in 2024, if Newsom is successful, I suspect you'll see Democrats in a lot of other states looking to have his campaign for lessons on how to run against Trump-ish types, if not against if, if not against the Donald himself. We've mentioned a number of times polling, so I'm going to ask a question from the audience. Um, considering we go through this every year now, or every post-election, it's like, why were the polls so wrong? So can we trust these polls? What do we know about the, the major polls that have come out? Well, I th- you know, I think the gold standard polls in California are the PPIC, the Public Policy Institute of California, and the Berkeley IGS, which is run by Mark DiCamillo, who was with the field poll. And, you know, those are really the A-grade uh, polls. And so you can, I think, trust what they have to say. And the, the others are kind of like... Uh, I, I should say the LA Times poll as well. I, I would put that in a, maybe slightly, not slightly below. But I, actually, I'm sorry, I, they work with IGS, so they they now work together. Uh, if I can just offer you a quick correction on that, Scott, before yeah. you go on. Um, I, had, as I think you know, founded the USC LA Times statewide political survey. And while USC still polls, it now polls almost exclusively on national issues. So really, the Berkeley IGS and the Public Policy Institute of California poll in my opinion, going back to what you said, are clearly the gold standard here. And while you'll see other polls in the news media that pop up over the next few weeks, and there's nothing wrong with paying attention to them, all of you in the audience should keep an eye out particularly for that Berkeley Institute of Governmental Studies and that Public Policy Institute of California poll, because Mark Baldessari and Mark D. Camillo are the two best in the state will give you the most reliable information. I didn't mean to interrupt, Scott, but just wanted to make it clear that SC was not Yes. No, thank you for line of work anymore. Um, I do think, though, that this is an odd election, you know, and it's the key question, I think, for for both of those pollsters is who's going to vote. And that's because that changes what the polls show uh, dramatically. And um, it's a little bit hard to predict. Uh, and we've also got everyone's got a ballot. They were all people were mailed. Twenty two million ballots have been mailed. And there's a, a website that tracks the ballots as they come back, I think, about. 
500,000, 600,000 have come back already. Democrats actually outperforming, you know, what you might expect at this point. Yeah, by two to one, they're, they're yeah. uh, the ballots. So the, they're coming Democrats. back early, which is interesting. Um, but, you know, I, I, there's a part of me that just says, you know, polls are interesting. We all follow them. We all look at them. But in the end, there's only, you know, as they say, one poll that counts, and that's the one on Election Day. Yeah, and, and this is the issue. As you said, who's going to vote? I mean, one of the reasons why the Newsom team put up those ads with Elizabeth Warren, which a lot of people were like, why, why is Elizabeth Warren, uh, you know, featured in so many of the Newsom ads? It's because they were trying to attract younger voters. They know they have, you know, the 50 and up crowd. And they're going to vote. These are reliable voters out here, but but it's the younger voters. I know a lot of, you know, very uh, with it younger people, my own kids who are very into politics, and they're kind of you know not into the recall. I, and, and I think that's the case for a lot of, you know, young, the millennial voters and younger, and that's their big challenge with the pollsters as well. When you talk about how accurate are the polls, are these are they picking up the phone? Also, ethnic. Ethnic voters, are they picking up the phone? Latinos, uh, Asian voters, and so forth. And that's where the accuracy of the polls, you know, people are worried about that. The other, the other real challenge on this, John, is that the, the best public opinion researchers, the best pollsters, look at past elections for guidance on voter turnout. And to a point that Scott was making a moment ago, it's worth remembering that this is only the second election in California history in which everyone was mailed a ballot. That was the presidential campaign, of course, of 2020, the first one, which means there has never been a midterm election with an all-mail ballot, and there's certainly never been a recall election with an all-mail ballot. So the pollsters certainly aren't guessing. DiCamillo and Baldessari are too smart for that, but they don't have the kind of reliable antecedents that a polling expert would normally have in a statewide race of this magnitude. That's right, and we're doing this election in August. It's you know August and September. This is not a traditional time. Voters are out there doing their own thing in the summer. There, a lot of them are just not tuned into the fact that there's a very critical election yeah. coming. I, th- I think those of us who are involved in covering these things and people like you who vote regularly and early, it's easy to forget how little attention the average person pays to politics until they almost have to because they're getting beaten over the head on TV every night with ads and stuff. And I think this one in particular, just because of all the other things going on, it's a weird time. Newsom's, you know, not super popular. And so I, I just think it's, it's, it's just, there, there is no precedent yeah. for this, yeah. you know? Um, obviously we're at a disadvantage here, not having the, my pillow guy to oversee the election, but <laughs> someone from the audience asked, okay, in this mail in ballot election, Will it take us a longer time to find out who the winner is, or might we know the, or might we at least know the yes or no answer on election night? Yeah, I mean, I think the yes or no part is a lot easier. Uh, it, certainly, I think. It, it, although it, the other thing that scrambles it a bit uh, is that Republicans have become sort of mistrustful of vote by mail because of things Donald Trump said and other Republican elected um, election officials. And so if they're holding on to their ballots and maybe they're going to walk them to the to the polling place sometime before the election, those later ballots could be could skew a little more conservative. So it, but I would say if on election night, Newsom, the, the, the yes vote is losing, you know, I think that's probably a good sign. But, you know, they have a long time for ballots to keep arriving. It's over a week. But um, I think you can prepare already for um the suggestion that the election has somehow been stolen because you're already seeing it. You're seeing it out there already on Facebook, uh, reports of people breaking into the drop boxes and so forth, whether whether or not they're accurate. I I did see one report on Instagram of a woman explaining the ballot and saying, see, you you fold it like this and you put it in the the envelope, they can look through this little hole and see how you voted, and then they're going to throw your ballot out. And, you know, you talk to the Secretary of State, and the Secretary of State will tell you every voter can track whether their ballot has been counted and how they're, you know, go online. You can do that. But yet, you know, this is the kind of thing that Republican candidates, including Larry Elder, are already fanning the flames of a stolen election before the election has even taken place. That, that's becoming baked into our politics. Yeah, yeah. We were talking before the program. I think your, your Illinois uh, uh, compatriots at uh, Politico 
reported that uh, the Illinois De Republican Party, right. in searching for candidates who would oppose uh, incumbent Democratic governor there, uh, Governor Pritzker, they said, oh, we don't have any litmus tests, but we are asking them all, do you think the presidential election was stolen? Yeah, and that is, there's a certain amount of discussion going on in the California Republican Party mm -hmm. on that, too. Well, let's game this out a bit. Okay, Governor Gavin Newsom loses. <laughs> what you, 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 you have away. likely a Republican taking office. There are some, again, as we mentioned, there are some Democrats, there are some uh, non unaffiliated folks running, like some Green candidates, but most likely a Republican gets in. Is that person going to be able to do anything with a super democratically controlled legislature? And, um, or does that person basically say, cool, I don't have to do anything because I don't have to take any blame for anything because of this super democratic legislature. I'm running for the 2022 general election. Well, there's a lot of things that a governor can do, whether or not they have the legislature's help or whether the legislature is a blockade. Um, I mean, just think of appointments, first of all. I mean, who's, who's going to be in charge of public health? Uh, you could imagine a lot of people in the bureaucracy at the head of these agencies are going to just leave right away. Who's going to replace them? That would be up to the next governor. There's a moratorium right now on executions, uh, which the next governor could end. There's about 30 people right now on death row that have exhausted their legal appeals. So you could see, you know, some rather quick pace of executions. Judges get appointed by the governor. They don't need approval. Uh, the budget, you know, there's a fairly long list of things that a governor can do and not to mention set the tone for California. And if a Republican takes over, they're going to become an, a star on Fox News immediately. You know, they're going to be mm -hmm. they're going to be uh, looked at as sort of the, the future of California, potentially, at least for the Republican Party. And, um, you know, so I, I think it would just be, if you can imagine, a very, very different tone toward immigrants, toward health, toward vaccines and masks and charter schools, you know, all kinds of things. Yeah, I mean, I think you could see you would things would grind to a halt in many respects up in Sacramento. But you'd also see a big change um, with regard to, I mean, basic issues, transparency and media, for instance, uh, Elder, Mr. Elder has been, uh, I think, unprecedented in cutting off a major newspaper, the Sacramento Bee, entirely. Reporters, editors, and photographers from have, have, will have no contact with them, has, has basically not uh, sat down with many media outlets, including our, our own. And I think we've, we haven't seen that kind of um, uh, approach up there in Sacramento. It's going to be interesting to see if, if that's the case. How, how a Republican government will interact with, with media. What would happen is the legislature, I predict, would revoke the governor's emergency COVID powers before the swearing-in ceremony was complete. That would be gone almost immediately. But what Scott and Carla have just pointed out, John, and I think it's really smart, is when we look at Sacramento, when we look at state politics, we think, tend to think of legislation passing. And of course, there's no way in the world the Demo a Democratic-controlled uh, legislature would let anything through that a Republican governor proposed, especially knowing that he's only going to be there for, for, for roughly a year. But in addition to passing laws, state government is about implementing them and overseeing their administration. And so even if no new laws on the books pass, the way existing laws are overseen and administered would change dramatically over the course of a year. The one other prediction I'd make is you would see the court fights that took place under a Trump administration look like small ball by comparison, because you would see the legislature and Democratic mayors and county supervisors throughout the state filing a suit to stop the type of executive actions that Scott was talking about earlier. And given the pace at which the courts work, ironically enough, most of those cases would probably not be decided until after the next election for governor next year. And Dan, can I throw out a scenario that I've actually heard some Democrats talk about? Um, I've heard some Democrats say, well, with the supermajority in both houses, the Democrats could actually impeach the governor. <laughs> <laughs> um, that it would require wrongdoing, but maybe wrongdoing would be, you know, um, um, an executive order undoing all the COVID mandates. Uh, that's, that would be enough. Would that be possible? It is legally possible. Politically, it's a fascinating question. 
But what I would suggest is that if the Democratic supermajority were facing the prospect of three or four years of a Republican governor, it would make a lot more sense politically than just than it just being one year. Because I suspect that the overwhelming uh, majority of that Democratic majority believes that they would reclaim the governor's office in 2022. And they don't want people to hate Sacramento, to hate state politics and state government, to be so disdainful of them. And so I suspect that standing their ground on public policy would probably serve the party better in the long run than engaging in yet another political fight that most Californians might find to be somewhat of a distraction. Um, but legally and constitutionally, it's appropriate. Politically, my own opinion is they might be better off fighting the fight on policy grounds rather than rather than politics. It does kind of beg the question, though, like, what, what will Newsom do? You know, either way. I mean, if he wins easily, then that sort of clears the path for him in 2022. But if it's close or if he you know, loses narrowly or wins narrowly, uh, there's blood in the water. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, obviously, if he loses, there's blood in the water. But mm-hmm. he's got 23 million bucks in his yeah. campaign uh, war chest for 2022. Right. You know, what's he going to do? with? Would he run again? Would he challenge Larry Elder? Would he, you know, but I doubt that other Republicans, uh, Democrats rather, would just sit by and let him, you know, run again yeah. by himself. There'll be, yeah. He would be challenged by other people. Yeah. Yeah. If Newsom, if Newsom does beat this recall by a sizable margin, I actually think it enhances his political stature, not just in California, but nationally. If he loses it, he's done. Uh, there you made the right point, Scott. There's such a large number of impatient Democrats of his generation, all eyeing the exact same Senate seat, that the land rush to replace him, to run for governor in 2022 would leave no space for him. What's interesting to me is if he survived the recall, but by a very, very small margin, he survived. And that gives him a year heading into reelection to buttress his image to some degree. But I still feel that even if he just barely dodges the bullet, politically speaking, he's still wounded. And that's going to compromise his effectiveness, not just in the legislature, but in in other ways going forward. Well, so his post-gubernatory, assuming he survives an election and gets reelected in 2022, but does either or both of those narrowly, that blunts any future potential national uh, move by him, do you think? Assume. Yeah. Anyone? Uh, yeah. I, th- I think, I mean, I think there's no secret that Gavin Newsom's always wanted to be president. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's kind of a, he's kind of waiting, biding his time. But I think in that regard, his best bet would have been for but, Trump but to if, get reelected. I agree with Dan, <laughs> if he comes out strong here. Yeah. And, you know, these early returns, I mean, they're, they're all, right, there's only 3% of the returns in right now. But the fact that Democrats are two to one um, in, in terms of their numbers. I think that's interesting because we all kind of expected Republicans would be ahead in the early returns because they're supposedly this enthusiasm gap is in their favor. Yeah. And uh, Katie Merrill, one of the Democratic judges today, said if that trend continues, if Democrats have this, there's no there's no problem. But uh, we still have to see. Yeah. One other sort of non sequitur. But we, earlier we were talking about what could a, what could a, a governor do if he was a Republican and, you know, Diane Feinstein's 88 years old. And, oh, that's uh, the big one. That's yeah, the yeah, big one. And if she right. were to suddenly not be able to fulfill that job, and uh, you can be sure Kevin Faulkner, John Cox, Larry Elder, Kevin Kiley, any of them would appoint a Republican. And, you know, the Senate is well, split 50-50 right Well, Kiley actually said he would leave it up to the people. Oh, how? Yeah. What does that mean? Leave, uh, leave it vacant? Uh, like, uh, b- basically wait until, uh, uh, I guess, the election, yeah, uh, the next well, election. But we'll, we'll see. He said he would not at a point, but he's the only one who yeah. has. So. I mean, that would be, that would yeah. be like a yeah. mind blower if that were to happen. And this is the other way that Newsom could potentially motivate his base. As we talked about earlier, his own record we're seeing is not particularly motivating to the Democratic uh, loyal, uh, loyal voters. Uh, going after Elder and the other Republicans seems to be working to... Uh, to some degree. But the other way that Newsom could inspire his base is to nationalize the election. And as Scott pointed out, the question about a Feinstein replacement, but on other federal issues, this could draw on Democrats who are very, very passionate about various aspects of the Biden-Harris agenda, but are more lukewarm toward Newsom. And once again, it's the reason we're seeing the vice president here on Friday 
not on the peninsula, not in the Central Valley, not in the suburbs, but in Oakland, in order to rally the Democratic base. So turning this into a conversation, not just about California, but about the country, uh, is the potential to be a very effective political strategy for Newsom's people. Okay, last question before we get to the news quiz. Um, and actually, it's a, sent in by a couple different people in the audience. That is, are we likely to see a change or an attempt to change the recall laws in the state? And if so, what are people talking about or what changes do you think would be most likely to uh, be made? I mean, there's already been legislative calls. It calls with the bar being so low in California and the fact that in, in this super hyper-partisan uh, atmosphere that we're in, we're going to see just rounds of recalls. And I think, uh, you know, pe people have said this needs to change. And so some of the bars are, you know, perhaps uh, handing it off to the lieutenant governor if there is a recall um, or requiring some kind of bar, a criminal um, Wrong criminal doing. bar, a criminal mark or something before a recall or many more signatures. Uh, those are some of the. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah and, and the legislature would probably have to put that on the ballot because I don't think anybody's going to circulate petitions to do that. And, you know, it's it just as voters like the pro the system we have of direct democracy, they kind of I, I don't know that they're going to want to make things easier for politicians, you know, by by making it harder to recall them. But that would be the way to do it. Would be, you'd need like two thirds of a vote. The, from the, the very cost of this one over two hundred million dollars. And um, I, I think uh, the, the kind of focus that's been given to this recall around the country has has upped the calls for change on that. And I think you will see the legislature address that after this and, one is and over. And one, one, one possible change, which wouldn't fly in the face of the type of populist resentment that Scott was talking about, would simply to be, uh, would be to allow the governor to be an alternative on the second question. And therefore, he or someday in, you know, she would have the opportunity to run against their challengers rather than just be there all by themselves on a yes or no referendum. But very quickly, John, before you get to the quiz, after the 2003 election, there was a feeling that if Democrats tried to reform the recall system, then they'd look like sore losers after Davis had been taken out of office. The Republicans certainly didn't want to change it for all the reasons we talked about earlier, plus they had just won. But I would, but I would bet you that regardless of the outcome of the recall, whether Newsom survives or not, you will see the type of broader reform effort that Carla and Scott have been talking about. Scott's right that voters are going to be very suspicious of any change to it that minimizes their voices. That's why I think just allowing the governor to be part of the second question does become a, a way of, uh, of navigating that challenge. Very good. Well, thank you to our panel. Let's move to our news quiz before we uh, end the night. Um, Wendy is going to be our prize delivery person. I think you all know how we do this. We'll ask a question. If you think you know the answer, raise your hand. Don't just shout it out. I'll call on you, then you can shout it out. And if you've got it right, Wendy will give you some delicious chocolate. Unless you're allergic to chocolate, in which case, don't take it. Can we okay. play? No. <laughs> we'll give you some chocolate, chocolate in the green room. Okay. First question. Texas Republican Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick refused to apologize after he blamed rising COVID hospitalizations and deaths on whom? That's right, unvaccinated African-Americans. Uh, Kentucky, speaking of governors, Kentucky's Democratic Governor Bashir had his pandemic powers curtailed by whom last week? No one? Okay. Well, it was the Kentucky, excuse me, the Kentucky State Supreme Court. Um, hey, Texas's Republican Governor Greg Abbott had his pandemic powers curtailed by whom last week? <laughs> Come on, there's a pattern here. You, it's not the Kentucky Supreme Court, sir. Texas Supreme, Supreme Court, that is correct. There you go, there you go. Yes, it would have been cool if it had been the Kentucky Supreme Court. But, okay. Uh, on a sad note, the Oakland Symphony conductor died at the age of 63. Who was he? Ma'am. In the chat, you with... Michael Morgan, that's right. I, was, I almost said you with a mask on. Okay, um... How did a self-described cowboy in Chinatown stop an assault on an elderly man last week? Right there in the aisle? That's right, he wrapped him in a bear hug until the police showed up. 
<laughs> we now know what the most popular Facebook post of the first quarter of 2021 was. What was it about? Uh, it was a vaccine, uh, uh, what would it be, a vaccine misinformation post, something like that. The New York Times reports that Facebook actually held off reporting about that post's popularity because they didn't want Facebook to look bad. <laughs> that doesn't make Facebook look bad, does it? Um, okay. Donald Trump was apparently booed at his own rally this weekend when he said, what are good? Sir, right back there. Uh, vaccines. vaccines, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Um, mad scientists report that rudimentary eyes have formed on a tiny human what that they've grown in a petri dish. This is a bit off the beaten path, but <laughs> science followers see this. Okay, little tiny homegrown human brain cells. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay. That one I missed. Okay, let's what go for something a little more wrong? normal. <laughs> uh, one half of the duo with hits like All I Have to Do is Dream and Wake Up Little Susie died at the age of 84. Who was he, ma'am? Don Everly, that's right, of the Everly Brothers. That's right. <laughs> NASA's goal of returning to the moon by 2024 might not be able to happen because what important element is not going to be ready? Something they need, sir. Their new spacesuits, that's correct. Liz Schuler has become the first woman to lead what organization? That is correct, the AFL CIO. Nice. Okay, and one more question. A former Mormon from California is going through the official process that could make her America's 13th and California's first what? That's right, Roman Catholic Saint. Her name is Cora Evans, if you're keeping score at home. Wow. Well, thanks to our great panel today, Carla Marinucci, Dan Schner, and Scott Schaefer. Thanks to all of you here in the room and everyone watching and listening online. Stay safe and stay healthy, and we'll see you again soon. Bye. Good. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.